Oh my goodness. Good morning, good afternoon. Whatever it is for you, I hope you're having a fantastic day. My name is Zach Schaumler. This is Strong Opinion Sports, episode 269. And uh, I hope you're doing well. I hope, I mean, I just, first of all, I'm grateful you're listening to the show. I want to tell you that, man, the plan for this episode, 269, has changed many, many times. I was going to record Monday, then Tuesday, then Wednesday. Here we are Thursday morning. Um, I kept pushing it back. I kept adding topics. Um, I actually ended up just deciding to split it into two different episodes. So, and you know, this is episode 269. Immediately after recording 269, I'm just going to hit reset on all the cameras and all the, the recording software. Bam. And record 270. 270 is just an entire episode doing Ask Zach questions. Um, in this episode, though, 269, we're going to talk a lot about the NBA. I, uh, I watched six basketball games in the last couple days. I have a lot to say. Uh, we're going to talk about college football, three major topics. The XFL was bought. I'll share my thoughts about that. Uh, we're going to end with a race review. We'll talk about the NFL at some point during the show. Uh, a lot of stuff's going on. I'm glad you're here. Glad you're listening. I want to tell you, again, I apologize. This episode's later than I wanted. I'm working hard to... I want to make a quality product. And I know that it's been... I, like I'm, ta- I'm, I'm going to start with a, a game from Sunday, an NBA game from Sunday to lead the show. It's Thursday. But that's also the nature of the show. I watch... You know, I record a ton of NBA games. I want to go back and talk about... Because even though the game happened on Sunday, there's still important stuff you can learn from a game, even if it's days ago. And so I want to talk about that kind of stuff. We'll dive in. Um, I have noticed that it's a really frustrating thing. I used to be able to, even as, you know, I feel like even two weeks ago I could, um, I could record the show. You know, I could stay up for like a ton of hours in a row, record the show at like, you know, two in the morning. And I can't, I, I hit a wall the last couple of days where it, I get to one in the morning and my mind's just foggy and I can't, I can't push through. Like, you know, when the, the a feeling of tiredness becomes exhaustion and when you're exhausted or useless, but when you're tired, like, Hey, that's the name of the game. Like I'm always tired. Um, I just, I don't know. I apologize. I, I feel bad. The show is as late as it is, but I'm excited to talk today. Let's jump in. Um, you know, if you're listening to the full episode today, I'm going to talk about six basketball games. Sunday though, is the best place to start in my opinion. So on Sunday, the Houston Rockets beat the Milwaukee Bucks. And the Bucks have the best record in the NBA. And some people say the Milwaukee Bucks are the best team in the NBA. Now, the Rockets are sixth in the Western Conference. And to me, what's still impressive about this win, even a few days later, it's not the fact that the Rockets beat the Bucks. What's impressive is the way they did it. What's impressive is the way that the Rockets in fact, took down the Milwaukee Bucks. They missed, literally, I am not exaggerating, they were 21 for 61 shooting three-pointers. The Rockets missed 40, four zero three-pointers and one. And even weirder, the Houston Rockets with, yes, James Harden, won with defense. So we'll get into James Harden's defense in a minute. I remember, I, I, let's just do it now, actually. I remember the memes over the years as people would Talk about James Harden making fun of his defense. I, I remember vividly like, oh, defense doesn't exist because James Harden's playing. And near the end of the game, the Rockets were fighting from, you know, down six points near the end of the game. They're fighting back from a six-point deficit. And the Rockets eventually took the lead 112 to 111. There was a crucial point in the game where the Rockets took the lead at the end. 
And the way that the Rockets took the lead was this. Giannis was being guarded by James Harden. And James Harden got a steal, which led to a fast break bucket, giving the Rockets a one-point lead. Houston won with defense. What the? I don't... And what's even crazier is it wasn't just defense. It was dominant defense. They were phenomenal in the second half against the Bucks. And the reality is that when the, the, Buc- when the Milwaukee Bucks needed a three-pointer down the stretch at the end of the game, they couldn't make it happen. You know, Chris Middleton, Giannis, they had opportunities. They had two distinct opportunities to hit a three-pointer to make the game and extend the game, and they could not do it. And down the stretch, the Rockets' defensive pressure... What it did was it forced the Bucks to take bad shots and it forced them into turning over the ball. Now, after this game, I kept seeing people say that, you know, they don't like watching James Harden. A lot of people, that's like a popular thing to say is, wow, James Harden is boring. I don't like his style of play. And that's how other people feel. I simply don't agree. I enjoy watching James Harden. Um, he's kind of an oddball. He's got a weird skill set where... He's a good shooter. James Harden, though, is not physically dominant. He relies on drawing fouls. There's that movie does where he does it less now, but that move where he takes it to the basket and he sticks his arms out as he drives to the lane, just jarring defenders. Go ahead, hit my arms and drawing a foul. And I think that's what people hate the most about him is that he goes to the free throw line all the time. And that's a literally gigantic part of his game is getting free throw shots. But if anybody tells you that James Harden is a terrible defender. You can correct them now. You can now correct them and say, he's not, you could say, I guess you could say that maybe he used to be a terrible defender. And James Harden certainly is not a, I don't want to say he's a great defender. He's not. But he has gotten better. James Harden has improved as a defender. And there are two things that James Harden is good at on defense. Number one, and remember, he's got an odd skill set. He's good at defending in the low post, near the basket. When a defender has their back to him and they're backing him down, James Harden is actually surprisingly good at defense in the low post. But he's also got really quick hands. He's good at swiping at the ball and getting steals. So James Harden isn't a terrible defender. If, you want to, if anyone ever says James Harden is awful at defense, give them those two things. He's good at defense in the low post and he's good at swiping at the ball and getting steals. In fact, he did it to beat the Bucks and steal the ball from Giannis, the former NBA MVP, to get a game-clinching bucket, or, or the, I guess the, the bucket that gave the Rockets a lead. James Harden made a defensive play. You can say, hey, if any of your friends say James Harden's a terrible defender, you can now correct them. And I'm telling you, man, the Rockets are just a blast to watch. I enjoy it so much. Um, their small ball lineup and the spacing that they have gener- generates a ton of three-pointers. It's really cool. They get a lot of shots off. And it's totally unique. And then I don't understand how anybody... I, I get maybe like a Portland Trailblazer fan who you know, played the Oklahoma City Thunder a ton, and they had a bunch of battles. I kind of understand that, why someone who's a Blazer fan wouldn't like Russell Westbrook. But if you're an objective person that doesn't have a stake in it, I don't understand how anybody could genuinely outright hate Russell Westbrook because from a competitive standpoint, he's passionate, he fights so hard, he's so convicted in what he does. 
And it, James, uh, what am I saying? Russell Westbrook's also so explosive and unpredictable. I I just enjoy it. I enjoy watching the dude go all out during a game. Now, the Rockets are sixth in the West. They are sixth in the Western Conference. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they are the sixth best team in the Western Conference. And teams like the Rockets, teams like the Miami Heat, are super important because I'm not sure they can beat teams you know, at the top of the standings in a six- or seven-game series. I don't know that the Miami Heat can beat the Raptors in a seven-game series. I don't know that the Rockets can beat the Clippers in a seven-game series, but they can push it to seven. They sure can make it interesting. A team like the Rockets can push a team like the Clippers to a six- or seven-game series, and as a fan of basketball, mm, that's awesome. That's very, very good, and they make things interesting. Now, in the Rockets and Bucks game, we caught a glimpse of a something I would call a terrifying future. And I think it is the future for, it's not just a potential future, it's a real legitimate future of the NBA. P.J. Tucker was guarding Giannis. And when you guard Giannis, you really have to respect his ability to score inside. So you give him a lot of room. Because you're prepared for him to drive inside. And when he does, you got to move your feet, you got to get in front of Giannis. And do not give him a clear line to the basket. you got to make it harder for him to get a shot off. Or force him to pass if you can. Which is, again, that's an incredibly difficult thing to do. But you got to give your best effort. And so, in the Rockets-Bucks game, P.J. Tucker's guarding Giannis. And Tucker's backed off. You know, Giannis is dribbling behind the three-point line. Tucker is backed off, getting ready for Giannis to drive to the rim. It's like you ever seen a... Uh, like it's In the Land Before Time, there's a Triceratops character it's a, the dinosaur with the horns and they rub their feet along the ground like they're stamping their feet getting ready to run at you that's a, what it looked like pj tucker was doing he's like i'm getting ready for Giannis to drive inside right at me and instead of driving to the basket Giannis just pulls up off dribble and shoots and knocks down a three and you're like okay wow and if he is able to do that consistently so Giannis is already Nearly unguardable because of his ability to score inside. I mean, he's insanely athletic. He's also six foot eleven, and it's very rare that one of the most athletic people in the entire league is also that tall. It's crazy. He's a he is a. I mean, the most one of the most athletically gifted people probably on the planet to have that kind of height and to move the way he does. But if Giannis is able to consistently hit that shot, the off the dribble three-pointer, then it's over. If he can do that regularly, then there will be nothing a defender can do to stop Giannis from scoring. And every single year I've watched Giannis, he gets better and better and better. He's like the Lamar Jackson of the NBA. Lamar Jackson is a quarterback in the NFL. They've actually both won MVPs at this point, and both are insanely gifted generational talents when it comes to athletic ability. And then what's the most scary about both Giannis and Lamar Jackson is that they still have room to grow. And not a little bit of room. The ceiling is incredibly high for both of these athletes. And you, I mean, when you watch Giannis, you see that sometimes he gets tunnel vision and he's driving inside and he'll miss and doesn't see an outlet pass where one of his teammates is standing open for three in the corner. He'll miss a wide open three because he doesn't see it. He's, got, he's too busy trying to drive to the basket. And if Giannis can get a little bit better at 
you know, not having tunnel vision when he's driving, and then also knocking down those three-point shots when people give him room and are prepared for him to drive, there's nothing you can do. And because Giannis has gotten better and better and better every single year he's been in the league, he keeps adding to his game. I would say that, you know, it's just inevitable that he's going to become better. In fact, he's already a better three-point shooter today than he once was a couple years ago. And now the next phase of Giannis's game he's going to add is going to be that off-the-dribble three-point shot. And once he adds that, once he's able to consistently hit that, it's over for the rest of the NBA. It's going to be incredibly hard, and I would say the word impossible, to guard Giannis. Now on Tuesday night, the Rockets played the Blazers. And oh my goodness, what a great game. It was intense. It was hard fought. I mean, this was a... The Blazers-Rockets was a playoff game, if we're honest. And I do want to say this is kind of an interesting thought. People keep saying that, you know, there's a... Carmelo Anthony's had a different litany of nicknames throughout his entire career where people call him this version of Melo or that version of Melo. And this version of Melo, people keep saying that now that he's on the Blazers, we're seeing skinny Melo. And I would actually say that this version of Carmelo Anthony is playoff Melo, where down the stretch he had... A huge block. He also had an important three-pointer. And the Blazers won. They beat the Rockets 110 to 102. And part of what helped the Rockets, or sorry, helped the Blazers beat the Rockets was Carmelo Anthony. And another part was that James Harden got into foul trouble. He got his fifth foul with, you know, this is James Harden. James Harden got his fifth foul with five minutes left in the third quarter. And you go, ooh, that's early. It's not even the fourth quarter yet. You got five fouls. And because of that, Harden had to play a lot softer and a lot more careful on defense for the rest of the game. And I want to say, too, by the way, I really thought that some of the fouls that were called on James Harden were a bit questionable is maybe the word. Um, like his, the fifth foul they called was Damian Lillard driving to the bucket. And he, you know, Damian Lillard kind of jumped into James Harden. And I'm like, I don't know that that's really a foul, but whatever, because it, you know, it certainly did help the Blazers. So, I mean, I'm, I'm not a fan of the Blazers, but it, it made the game more interesting because I didn't, I wasn't sure if the Blazers were going to be able to beat the Rockets. And I don't know that if they play in a series like that, I don't know that the way the Blazers beat the Rockets is entirely sustainable because you're not going to have James Harden get into foul trouble every single night. Now, one of my favorite parts of the game, and this is a, a small nuance of the Rockets defense. You know, the Rockets have this massive lack of size where it's a, people say it's, some people think it's a problem. Some people think it's interesting where, you know, the Rockets have no real true center on their team that they play in their game. And meanwhile, the Blazers have three seven footers. The Blazers, one of their strengths is their height. And many teams try to take advantage of the Rockets by, you know, throwing the ball inside, taking advantage of the lack of height the Rockets have. And the Blazers especially were trying to throw the ball up inside to their center. So throw the ball up inside to Hassan Whiteside or inside to Zach Collins or, hey, let's throw the ball up to Yusuf Nurkic inside, try to get him some shots in the low post. Get, like get him a layup, basically. And oddly enough, when you do that, it actually helps the Houston Rockets. Even though you think, okay, well, they're, they're a tiny team. They don't have a ton of size a seven-footer has got to have an advantage on the low post. Well, what the Rockets do, they see it as an opportunity to get turnovers where the Rockets will front a big man down low. 
meaning you know the ball's outside of the three-point line and the defender gets between the ball and the the guy he's defending leaving a clear direct path to the basket open and what teams try to do is say okay hey the center's got a clear lane to the basket let's throw the ball up the center's got to grab it turn around shoot a layup pretty easy it makes sense and the rockets go oh no 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 go ahead and try and what they do is they try to intercept that pass they sit and they wait on it and they generate a lot of turnovers that way it actually works a lot it's like a corner sitting on a hitch route in the NFL where the corner is sitting there trying to get the quarterback to throw that ball just waiting waiting they see it it breaks on it bam pick six and i there's many moments where you watch the rockets and they front a big man meaning they get instead of between him and the basket they get between him and the ball and they go i dare you throw the ball up then they jump make a play tip the ball to themselves and steal it it's really really fun and interesting to watch when you watch the rockets now the final thing i want to talk about from this game i got to talk about gary trent junior gary trent junior is this kid, he's a, a second-round pick from 2018. His dad played in the NBA. And he's really doing some big stuff for the Blazers. He's coming off the bench. You know, Damian Lillard had uh, 21 points, a big three at the end. CJ McCollum had 20 points. And Gary Trent Jr. had 16 points off the bench for the Blazers against the Rockets. And what's cool is that so far, the first two games in the bubble, what you've seen from Gary Trent Jr. is that he's really more of a catch-and-shoot three-point shooter. That's what I'd seen so far in the first two games. And in the third game in the bubble for the, Ro- for the Blazers against the Rockets, he really expanded his game where he had an off-the-dribble three-point shot that he made. He had some catch-and-shoot threes, which is a staple. He also had some really good drives to the basket. He had a really nice and one. And Gary Trent Jr. deserves a lot of recognition. He's a guy that I don't think a lot of people have heard of who's playing very, very well. And he's a great sixth man. In fact, I think eventually he's going to become a starter if he keeps playing the way he is. Gary Trent Jr., he's a six foot six shooting guard uh, coming off the bench for the Blazers. He deserves a lot, a lot of credit in Portland with the Blazers. Okay, I want to talk about the Boston Celtics and the Blazers. Um, give me a second. Man, I... Uh, when you, I'm not sleeping enough, honestly. I've been working on the show constantly, watching a ton of basketball. I really haven't, like I, I don't know, I've, I've done pretty much all I've done is work, and it's really hard to like keep, I forget to drink water a lot of the time, and it's really frustrating. I want to talk about the Blazers and the Celtics. Um, the Celtics beat the Blazers on Sunday night, a couple of days ago. And this was a game that did not start well for the Portland Trail Blazers. It was very interesting uh, the Celtics are a tough matchup for the Blazers because the Celtics have a lot of height uh, with their wings. You know, they have Jalen Brown, who's six foot seven. You have Jason Tatum, who's six foot eight. You have Gordon Hayward, who's six foot seven. And you contrast that with going, well, the Blazers have their, you know, Damian Lillard, who's six foot two, and CJ McCollum is six foot three. Which means you had at one point, you had CJ McCollum consistently guarding Jason Tatum, who's six foot eight. It's a massive size difference. And CJ really was not able to get up and contest Jason Tatum's shot at all. Jason Tatum had 34 points in the game, and early on in that game, he was getting every shot he wanted. And then Portland also started two centers. They started Yusuf Nurkic and Zach Collins. And the problem with that is, you know, they're tall. Sure, great. You want size against the Celtics. The problem, though, 
is they weren't actually able to help guard any of the Celtics faster, taller wings because they're just too slow. Brutal. They couldn't get around pick and rolls quick enough. They couldn't switch fast enough. It really affected them down the stretch. And not even, I guess, down the stretch is the wrong, wrong way to put that. It affected them a lot in the first half before the Blazers made an adjustment. So at halftime, the Blazers were down 20 points. They were down 48 to 67. I guess that's 19 points. Uh, and the Celtics dominated in the first half. Jason Tatum was scoring like crazy. Uh, but in the second half, a change was made where Damian Lillard took it upon himself to guard Jason Tatum. He said, look, this dude is dominating right now. I got to put it on myself and step up to stop him. And even crazier is that Damian Lillard, you know, CJ McCollum, who's six foot three, was really, really struggling to contest Jason Tatum's shots. Now, Damian Lillard, six foot two, an inch shorter. And the, the size difference between Damian Lillard and, and Jason Tatum, six foot eight and six foot two, is ridiculous. And yet, despite being six inches shorter, Damian Lillard's intensity was higher than CJ McCollum's, and he contested almost every shot. Jason Tatum took in the second half. At one point, Damon Lillard even blocked Jason Tatum. Yes, Damon Lillard blocked Jason Tatum, even though Jason Tatum is six inches taller than him. Lillard wanted to win, and I love that intensity from Damian Lillard. His effort was outstanding, and he was literally, I mean, just diving all over the place, on the court, diving after loose balls, grabbing rebounds. Damian Lillard's effort and intensity it's so impressive to me. It reminds me a lot of Kyle Lowry with the Toronto Raptors. Those two guys, Kyle Lowry and Damian Lillard right now, are two guys that just fight incredibly hard. They're great leaders. Um, they're not quite Russell Westbrook. I, I think they're different. I don't, know how to, I don't know how to define yet why they're different. Um, but Westbrook's a little more sporadic maybe, I guess, where these guys are just the less sporadic and more just energy and fight and intensity. And I love it. It's so much fun to watch. Now, the Blazers were able to close the gap uh, by the end of the game. You know, the Celtics were up big in the first half. By the final minutes of the game, you know, the Celtics only won 128 to 124. And the Celtics took care of business at the end. Jalen uh, Brown hit a big three-pointer. Um, and the Blazers were down three points at the end when, oddly enough, it was weird. You know, Damian Lillard passed up a contested three-point shot to pass inside to Yusuf Nurkic. Uh, to get a layup, which is great. Like a good look in basketball terms. Like, hey, good move. You know, it's a two-point shot for Nurkic, guys wide open. But with three seconds left, you can't really afford to give the Celtics the ball without tying the ball game. At least getting the shot off to try to tie the game. So they got a meaningless layup. It was kind of a weird sequence. I didn't really, I was like, I mean, Dame, I don't, I, like, I don't know if you're the coach. Do you go like, hey, great basketball move, but you should have just shot the shot. I mean, you're known for hitting contested three-point shots well beyond the arc. Um, it's a weird sequence. But it's a close game where, I mean, at the end, the Celtics simply, they were the better team at the end. They won. But I do have to wonder, what about, I call him GT Jr., Gary Trent Jr. If Gary Trent Jr. had started... Instead of Zach Collins, what would have happened between the Celtics and the Blazers? Could have, you know, you could have had Yusuf Nurkic, who's seven feet tall, uh, Carmelo Anthony, six foot eight. You need Damian Lillard and CJ McCollum, despite the fact that they have very limited height. They're good enough scorers where they justify their, uh, you know, their, their being on the court. But if you replace Zach Collins, who, yes, has size, 
but also the speed was a problem on defense. If you replace Zach Collins with Gary Trent Jr., who's a six foot six point guard or six foot six shooting guard, excuse me, who's got some size and more speed than Zach Collins, could that have made an impact? Could that have helped the Blazers not get down into a twenty point deficit? I don't know. But it's really interesting to think about that. Like, okay, maybe if they messed with the lineup a little bit. And I understand that the Blazers and the Celtics are not in the same conference. And so maybe that there was some scouting issue. I, I don't know. I don't know what happened. But I do wonder if the Blazers were to replay the Celtics again down the road, would starting Gary Trent Jr. instead of Zach Collins have helped their lineup? You know, you, Gary Trent Jr. had seven three-pointers. He had 21 total points in the game. Again, every single one of those points was a three-point shot. But his mix of size and speed on defense could have been vital in defending a guy like Jason Tatum and you know, Jalen Brown and Gordon Hayward. And so I, I just go back to maybe that six foot six shooting guard, Gary Trent Jr. is playing really well off the bench. Could have made a difference if he'd started instead of Zach Collins, who I love Zach Collins. Uh, and, and no knock on him, really, but Zach Collins is a much slower defender than a guy like Gary Trent Jr. Okay, I finally got to watch the Miami Heat in the NBA bubble. Um, I watched the Heat lose to the Raptors 107-103. And then later I watched the Celtics lose to the Heat 112-106. I watched the Heat win a game and lose a game. And uh, oddly, Miami beat the Celtics without their star player, Jimmy Butler. And, you know, Miami nearly, with Jimmy Butler, nearly beat the Raptors. They lost at the end. Uh, you know, the, the the Heat had a turnover on the final possession of the game that cost them the game, in my opinion, at least a chance to tie the game. Um, and Miami, they were one possession away from beating the Toronto Raptors. And it's just pretty clear to me that the Miami Heat are a very, very good basketball team. And it's also a team that's very important to the NBA. A team like the Miami Heat, who, if you're a fan of the NBA and you want to watch the playoffs and have a great playoff experience... A team like the Miami Heat, who they're you know fourth in the Western Conference, in the Eastern Conference, excuse me, they might be fourth in their conference, fourth in the East, but they're good enough to challenge the teams at the top of the conference. They can challenge the Bucks. They can challenge the Celtics. They beat the Celtics. They can challenge the Raptors. Make it a really close game at the end and make the Raptors very very nervous all the way down to the end of the game. And the Heat go to war. With anybody they play, they are a fun, fun group of guys to watch. Um, I just, man, I really like what Miami's doing. They can push the series to six or seven games with anybody in their Eastern Conference. And I love Jimmy Butler. If you've never watched Jimmy Butler, he's an old-school, intense, tough basketball player who's going to fight, claw, scratch the entire way. And what I love about Jimmy Butler is less about how he plays necessarily, but also about the stories you hear about Jimmy Butler off the court during the offseason and behind the scenes, he's a guy who is going to challenge his teammates. He's a guy who's going to be maybe tough to play with, uh, but he's going to make you better if you work hard. And the truth is that Jimmy Butler is going to be easy to play with if you match his intensity and you work really hard. If you match that intensity Jimmy Butler brings and you want to win, because Jimmy Butler, at the end of the day, is a guy who desperately wants to win basketball games. That is something I don't know how you can't respect and how you can't really, really enjoy watching the competitive nature of a kid. I guess not a kid. He's a, he's a dude. He's older than me. Um, Miami's got a really 
interesting roster. They have Bam Adebayo, who's a guy. Bam Adebayo, thank goodness he spells his name like you would. If you had to like, if you phonetically spell Bam Bam Adebayo's name, you'd go, okay, that makes sense. That's what I would expect. Um, you have Goran Dragic, who is a uh, he had twenty points against the Celtics and the 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 Heat's victory over the Celtics. You have um, Miami has Kelly Olynyk. They have Jay Crowder. Um, and when the Celtics beat the, when, what am I saying? When the Heat beat the Celtics, their bench had 56 points. Kelly Olenek had 17. Tyler Hero had 12. He's only 20 years old, by the way, a guy out of Kentucky, really fun to watch. Uh, and Goran Dragic had 25 points against the Celtics. If your bench is scoring 56 points, that's a big deal. It's really, really helpful to your team. And that's what the Heat are. They're a bunch of really evenly distributed players. It's really fun. It's really interesting and really cool. Now, my favorite member of the Miami Heat is Duncan Robinson. This is a dude who can bury three-pointers. And it's only his second year in the NBA. He's out of Michigan, and he's an, he was an undrafted free agent coming out of Michigan. To go from being an undrafted free agent to now starting... For the Miami Heat, that's a big deal. That's really, really cool to me. I loved it. I love his story. It's very clear. He's got a great work ethic. And uh, Duncan Robinson had 21 points against the Boston Celtics. That's a big deal. Bunch of three-pointers. He had five of them. And Duncan Robinson is why Miami was able to beat the Boston Celtics without Jimmy Butler. Duncan Robinson, that bench, um, really great effort, some good attention to detail. I really like the Miami Heat's head coach, Eric Spolstra. He's a, I've talked about him before. It's interesting. He's like one of the few coaches where LeBron James has left the team and the coach actually finds a way to stick around and stay relevant because he's just a really good basketball coach. And then I go back to that story of um, Duncan Robinson. He's a guy, I'm sure Jimmy Butler likes him because he's a guy, Duncan Robinson, went from an undrafted free agent to starting for the Miami Heat. That's a cool story to me. And uh, I hope he gets a raise. I hope he gets a new contract. I am rooting for Duncan Robinson. He's one of those guys. I'm like, ah, oh, that's really cool. Okay. Um, uh, gosh, I need some. I need a drink real quick. It's pineapple juice, but it's it's in my throat. I'm telling you, when you talk for this long in a row, um, your throat does pay a price. Now. On Wednesday, I was just kind of living my life. I was working on the show. Uh, I was watching another basketball game, actually, when uh, I saw that the Phoenix Suns beat the L.A. Clippers. And I went, wait, what? How did the Suns beat the L.A. Clippers? I think the Clippers are a team that could win the championship this year. What happened? I just was so interested. And I, I record every single NBA game. And so I found the recording. And I just there's like a button you hit NBA and you add the NBA and they record every single NBA event to my uh, my like cloud DVR or whatever that this YouTube TV is great. Um, and so I found the recording. I was watching the game and I, I dove into it and I got a lot to say about the Suns and about the Clippers and what happened. But the number one most important thing, you know, this is how the Clippers lost to the Suns. This is how the Suns beat the Clippers. The way it happened was with a guy named Devin Booker. You know the name, Devin Booker. He's a guy with superstar talent, in my opinion. Just a great, phenomenal scorer. And Devin Booker not only had 35 points. He had six three-pointers. He had eight assists. 
But what's crazy about Devin Booker is he just kept hitting clutch shot after clutch shot after clutch shot. Defenders in his face, down the stretch, totally cool with it. Just kept burying massive bucket after massive bucket, continuing to keep his team in the fight and keep them alive against the L.A. Clippers. And I just, I'm telling you, man, Devin Booker hit so many big shots. If you, we're going to talk about what, the most impressive shot he took was the final shot, but don't forget the other ones he took leading up to the final shot. So Devin Booker hits the game-winning shot, the game-winner, with two of the best elite wing defenders in the NBA guarding him. He hit the game-winner over both, not one, but both of them, both Kawhi Leonard and Paul George. He knocked down the game-winner with them guarding him. It's a big deal. I mean, the Suns won 117-115, to 115, and it's because of Devin Booker's effort and because the Suns are just playing really, really good basketball right now. Uh, they're 3-0 and in the bubble. DeAndre Ayton is awesome. He's their draft pick from uh, previously. And it's fun to watch DeAndre Ayton because he wears the shorts really low. And he already looks like he belongs in the 80s when you look at his body type. And his, he's, a, he's a center at heart. And you watch you know, DeAndre Ayton. He's got the, the short shorts. And he looks like he belongs in the 80s with Larry Bird or you know, Magic Johnson. It's so cool. Uh, he had 19 points against the Clippers. Uh, and a big part of why the Suns beat the Clippers was uh, Mikal Bridges. Mikal Bridges was guarding Kawhi Leonard. And the Suns have Ricky Rubio. So you have Mikal Bridges guarding Kawhi Leonard, who I, I think is a guy who... I don't know if he gets enough love, honestly. He's a guy who is not the best scorer. He doesn't put up a ton of points. But his defense was crucial in this game with the Suns beating the Clippers because they had a guy who could slow down and get in front of Kawhi Leonard. Now, the Suns have Ricky Rubio. Ricky Rubio is a guy that I... I rem- When I heard... I was like, oh yeah, the Suns have Ricky Rubio. I was watching the game like, oh yeah, wow. And he's a guy who was a bit overhyped coming out of Europe to the NBA where it's not really... Ricky Rubio's fault. The media wanted him to be a star, kind of like Luka Doncic is. Um, And Ricky Rubio is just not a superstar. But the reality is that Ricky Rubio is awesome, and he's a point guard who can help your team win. He's a guy who's a very above-average, what am I saying, above-average point guard in the NBA. And I, I think he deserves a little bit more respect than he gets. People just constantly talk about Ricky Rubio like he's a giant bust. It's like, I don't know that it's fair to call him a giant bust. He had unrealistic expectations coming out of Europe to the NBA. Now, here's a fun thing that I kind of can't believe I can say about the Phoenix Suns is that you look at their team. They have Ricky Rubio. They have uh, Mikael Bridges. They have Devin Booker. They have DeAndre Ayton. And I really believe that the Phoenix Suns are just one more big name or one more big contributor away from winning a lot, a lot of games. And it's so awesome to be able to say that. I mean, the Suns haven't made the playoffs in 11 years, which I know for like the Detroit Lions fans listening are like, wow, 11 years is like nothing, right? Um, but think about it, man. They have a young DeAndre Ayton. They have, you know, DeAndre Ayton missed a ton of games this year. Uh, that hurt the Suns. They have Ricky Rubio. They need one more player. Maybe maybe a guy like Mikael Bridges is going to improve as a scorer. That'd be really huge. Um, but beating the Clippers was a big deal for the Phoenix Suns. The broadcasters throughout the game, the broadcasters kept hinting, well, like, 
Any minute now, the Clippers are going to turn it on. Any minute now, the Clippers are going to turn it on and win this game. And I can't blame them. But the Suns beat the Clippers with Lou Williams back. Now, Lou Williams is um, still recovering from being quarantined. He was on limited minutes. But I'm telling you, man, the Suns winning on Wednesday was a big deal. And it's, I'm happy for the Suns. It's a big win for their franchise. They're 3-0 in the bubble. And Devin Booker, man, you can't forget how many, not just the final shot. Devin Booker hit multiple clutch shots down the stretch with defenders in his face to keep the Suns alive in that game. And then he hit the game winner over not just Kawhi Leonard, but Kawhi Leonard and Paul George, two of the elite wing defenders in the NBA. Credit to Devin Booker. I'm so happy for the Suns. And uh, I would love to see the Phoenix Suns in the next couple of years develop into a team that has a winning record and makes the playoffs. I think it'd be so cool. And I think brighter days are ahead. <laughs> I know they're the Suns, which is kind of ironic. Brighter things are ahead for the Phoenix Suns. Okay. Um, man, I got to say, the NBA right now, the NBA right now to me is the best it's ever been. I uh, There's so much young talent. The bubble... Is, is really helpful because it adds kind of a a playoff intensity. There's this atmosphere in the bubble where the atmosphere is like no other, where it just feels like anybody can beat anybody and everybody believes they can beat everybody and there's so much parity. Like the Nets beat the Milwaukee Bucks or the Suns beat the Clippers you have. The West is crazy competitive with the Lakers, the Clippers, the Rockets, the Mavs, the Blazers are good enough to, I think, beat and challenge those teams at the top. The East is amazing. The Milwaukee Bucks, the Raptors, the Celtics, the Miami Heat. The Pacers are really good. You got TJ Warren going crazy. And it's so competitive right now in the NBA. It makes me wonder if actually the bottom eight teams in the NBA, this is a dark thought. It's going to make some people really mad because I'm going to say, well, basically like the Knicks aren't there, <laughs> the Golden State Warriors aren't there. But is it possible that we don't need the bottom eight teams in the NBA. Like, they just bring the NBA down. I think so, actually. The teams that aren't in the bubble don't seem to be needed to have really great basketball games. And is is 22 teams actually the perfect amount? Is that the perfect amount of teams to have in the NBA? You know, I think that's a super problematic thought because you go, well, again, you can't you know have the league without the Warriors and Steph Curry. Uh, and the New York Knicks are such a despite bad ownership, a historic franchise. But man, and it's not about the teams that are in the bubble or not. It's about the fact that the amount of players, the amount of teams currently is great because it's so competitive. Everybody can beat everybody. And there aren't really any super teams right now in the NBA, which is a huge, really big blessing. There's no dominant teams the way that, you know, there's no team like the Warriors were the last couple of years. And, uh, you know, it's, what's really telling to me is I just watched six NBA games in a row, and yet I still cannot wait to watch more basketball tonight, Thursday night. Um, that says a lot about how good the product is on the court. I know a lot of people are mad about stuff that is not related to basketball with the NBA. For me, I love basketball. And watching the sport, oh, it's glorious. And I'm telling you, it's super competitive. It's so fun to watch. And the product on the court has never been better, in my opinion. It's so competitive. It's so interesting. And it feels like any night, any game, anybody can beat anybody unless you're the Washington Wizards. And so 
I'm telling you, man, it's really fun. I am really, really genuinely in love with the NBA right now. It's so, so good. Now, I'm going to drink some more uh, pineapple juice. And this is not Dole, by the way. I, I, the Dole pineapple juice the, from concentrate stuff is really, really bad for you because it's just like sugar water. You got to find the actual stuff where they like they took a pineapple and they squeezed it. It's like it's really expensive. It's frustrating, but it's good for your throat. Makes it easier to talk for a long time. Um, since the NBA bubble started, TJ Warren is a name that has really a name I learned about. He's on the. Uh, Indiana Pacers. TJ Warren had a 53-point game to start the Indiana Pacers, you know, run in the NBA bubble. And I went, oh, okay, wow. And TJ Warren burst onto the scene. But there are three other players that you know, are in the NBA right now that, in my opinion, are not very popular and I believe deserve a little bit more recognition. Now, number one is Gary Trent Jr. Gary Trent Jr., I call him GT Jr., Um, he's a guy who comes off the bench for the Portland Trailblazers. He was a second-round pick in 2018. He's the son of a former NBA player, Gary Trent, obviously his dad, because he's Gary Trent Jr. Uh, The dad played for the Blazers, the Raptors, the Mavs, the Timberwolves in Minnesota. And against Memphis, GT Jr., Gary Trent Jr., had 17 points, four three-pointers. You know, you can see that he can catch and shoot. He can shoot off the dribble and hit threes. And then against Boston, he had 21 points, seven three-pointers. Bang, huge deal. And I got to wonder, like, if Gary Trent Jr. had started over Zach Collins, the Blazers might have had a better defensive matchup with the Celtics and could have won that game. And then he had 116 points. What am I saying? Whoa, not 116. He had 16 points against the Houston Rockets. And uh, he's progressing. He's not just a three-point shooter. He was actually driving to the rim and had a really good and one. And so Gary Trent Jr. right now is a dude who is an up-and-coming player. He deserves a lot of respect. He can score. Uh, He's got great effort. He's clearly, the work ethic is there. He's gotten a lot better. And he's working really, really hard ever since joining the NBA two years ago. Now, number two, the next guy on the list is probably the least noteworthy player on the list. It's Mikal Bridges from uh, the Phoenix Suns. He's a second-year player out of Villanova. He won a national championship there at Villanova. And the best thing Mikal Bridges brings to the table is his defense. He's not an incredibly wild scorer that puts up giant numbers and hits a bunch of threes, but he's got really good on-ball defense, and it's a guy that no one really talks about because he's on the Phoenix Suns, which doesn't help him. Then he's also a guy who doesn't put up a bunch of points, which helps him even less, and... uh, He's the guy who guarded Kawhi Leonard when the Suns played against the Clippers. Remember, the Suns beat the Clippers. Part of that was Evan Booker. Part of that was because they had a guy who could guard Kawhi Leonard. And uh, his defense is a really important part of the Suns' recent success. He is your on-ball defender, the guy you put on whoever you're playing, the best player you're playing. And he deserves a little bit more recognition. Mikal Bridges from the Phoenix Suns is a guy that, again, not a loud, flashy player, but does some really good work on defense. You know, number three is my favorite player on the list. He was an undrafted free agent out of Michigan two years ago. He is now a starter for the Miami Heat. That is Duncan Robinson, my favorite story on this list. Um, He doesn't just play again. He's a starter. And it's so cool. He's shooting over a little bit over 44% 
uh, from three-point range this year. Uh, again, an undrafted free agent from Michigan. He goes to Miami, becomes a starter. He had 21 points and a win over the Celtics. And, uh, man, I really hope that Duncan Robinson gets a raise and a new contract eventually. I'm so happy for him. Uh, Gary Trent Jr. is working really hard. Duncan Robinson is working really hard. He's really much improved. And uh, those are three people, Mikael Bridges, Duncan Robinson, and Gary Trent Jr. Three guys that, in my mind, are not big names that deserve a little bit more recognition so far, especially in the NBA bubble, but just currently around throughout the league. Those are three guys that deserve a little bit more recognition in the NBA. Guys, my name is Zach Schaumler. I'm going to take a short break. It's been a really long opening segment. Uh, and I hate to tell you, we got a lot more long stuff up ahead. We're going to talk about college football next. It's a mess right now. And um, we'll talk about college football a lot. Then we're going to talk about the Packers. We'll talk about uh, the Rock buying the XFL. We just have, this episode is so massive and so long, but it's really good. I'm really proud of it. My name is Zach Schaumler. I'm going to take a short break. I will be right back. All right. Hope you're doing well. Let's jump back into the show. Uh, college football is a mess right now. College football. Oh, man. Uh, the NCAA canceled all of the Division Two and Division Three fall championships because of COVID-19. Uh, UConn football, I think partially because they don't make any money playing college football. UConn football has, I actually lose money, about $10 million a year. UConn football has announced the cancellation of their football season due to risks that are you know, present by COVID. It's presented by COVID is the word I'm looking for. Um, and I think most interesting in all this stuff going on in college football right now is that in the Pac-12, there is a group of players who have come together in a movement they call the hashtag We Are United movement. Uh, there are roughly 400 players at this point that are a part of this. They gave a list of demands. They said, hey, Pac-12, here's a list of stuff we want. And if we don't get it, um, then we are going to sit out for the season if our demands are not met. Here are their demands. Uh, they want health and safety protections for COVID-19. They want, really, they want better health care all around for football players. Um, they want to end racial injustice in college sports. They want to have guaranteed medical coverage, like I just mentioned. And they want the rights to their name, image, and likeness and fair market pay. Now, there are a couple noteworthy things here. Um, they said they want 50% of the revenue from college football to go to the players. And people say that's a crazy high amount. And when you think about it, uh, it's actually not crazy for the people that are doing the work to get 50% of what they're doing. Um, what's crazy is the thought that the people at the top are going to give up 50% of their revenue to the players. That's that's not going to happen. Uh, but it has to be a crazy high amount that the players bring to the Pac-12 because what the Pac-12 is going to try and do is say, okay, let's negotiate. Let's have a conversation. They're going to haggle. They're going to go back and forth. And if you're going to do that as the players, you got to start high. You can't start at 6% because then they're going to talk you down to 2%. If you start at 50%, okay, let's have a conversation. And they talk you down, but you're not going to go down as far. If that makes, I don't know if that makes, it's crazy or not, but you got to start really, really high in a negotiation like that if you're the player's side. Now, this is really, really important to say. Uh, I keep hearing people say that they don't want players to be compensated. 
people say, like, I don't agree that college athletes should be compensated. And what's overlooked is that players are actually already compensated. A college football player gets an education. They get food. They get housing. uh, They're on scholarship. They get all those things. Here's the problem. It's not that they're – first of all, I think the – I think part of it is that the, the the conversation we're having isn't quite right. People say players shouldn't get compensation. Well, no, they already are given compensation. The problem is that while food and a dorm and classes does have a monetary value, it's too low. The amount of stuff players are getting, the 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 value that they're getting is not equal to what they're worth. When you have a value, you should be paid something along the lines of the value you bring in, in my opinion. Colleges make millions and millions of dollars. The, the big colleges, not the small ones. We'll talk about that difference in a minute. But the Power Five conference schools like Alabama, LSU, Washington State, they make millions of dollars off of college football. And the players really don't get paid fairly based on the value they bring in for the university. Now, um, I know that behind the scenes, um, well, first of all, I guess I I know people behind the scenes that are involved with the Pac-12 movement. And what happened is that players had to go home during coronavirus. Coronavirus sent guys home, and they couldn't be on campus, and they had a lot of time to sit around, and they went home. And some of them saw their parents lose their jobs, and they saw people they know get sick with coronavirus or even die. And... Some guys went back from college to intense poverty, and sometimes even that poverty was caused by coronavirus. And so college football players were at home with a lot of time to think about stuff. And they realized, man, my family's struggling for food, or people are sick, or we have people that can't afford to do this or that. Meanwhile, my college is making millions and millions of dollars, and I can't even post on Instagram with an ad that makes money, right? I, I can't, I'm missing out on so much money because of the rules of college football. I'm not getting paid fairly. What's happening here? Why is this happening? And I want to be honest about something. The degrees that many college football players get are kind of a joke. And I, if you want, you can blame the athlete when I say that. You can say, well, if an athlete really wants a degree – they can go find one. And yes, you can. Especially if you go to like Stanford, you're going to have an easier time getting a real degree uh, than you are at most schools. But if you want a legitimate degree, a really tough medical science degree or an engineering degree or a really tough, complicated, tough, you know, hard classes degree. And, I, you know, <laughs> my English is broken there. But the point is, if you want to take tough classes in college and play football at the same time, you're going to have the college football program fight against you Every step of the way. The reality is that players are asked to sacrifice their education to make football work. Guys are fitting school around football. Nobody's really fitting football around their education. Because again, they're asked to do so. Guys are discouraged from getting harder degrees. They often are communication majors. Um, They are asked to pick classes that, based on you know, what fits into the schedule of football practice. And most athletes get communication degrees. I was a communication major myself. I took a bunch of communication classes. I was in a college of communication, not at one school, but at three 
let me tell you, um, communication degrees are majority nonsense. Like they, it's a lot of stuff you can learn on Google. It's a lot of stuff that's common sense, and it's a lot of stuff. That, honestly, it's a waste of time and ridiculous. Maybe that's all college. I know that a communication degree is. Um, it's not, it's, it's just easy nonsense and a lot of filler kind of busy work. Um, and when athletes get crappy degrees, uh, they don't have the skills required to get jobs in a competitive situation with other graduates where it's like, we've got to play college football who isn't very good at writing and, you know, you know, making memos and stuff. Or we have a guy who's got a degree from this other place and, uh, he has better training and he had an internship and he's got this and that. Often, when you see a college football player graduate, I mean, I know, I know so many former athletes who played football in college. They have a degree from a major university, and now they work a minimum wage job. And I don't—it's it's tough because you're like, well, they got to work better on skills, but it's also they were incentivized the whole way to do it a certain way. Um, and I want to talk about COVID because— I think the most reasonable thing that players asked for, and, I, and by the way, I want to say the reason why I went on a rant about college is because people keep saying, well, they get degrees and you can get a degree. It's really hard. And often you're incentivized to not get a very good degree is my point. You're not paying them. And the thing that you always say, people say, well, they're getting paid in education. The education they're paid, you know, they're given in college to play football often isn't really that great either. Now, COVID is important. I want to talk about coronavirus. English is hard. I want to talk about coronavirus because the most reasonable thing the players asked for in their list of demands from the Pac-12 was their safety measures related to coronavirus. Um, a friend of mine's a dean of a college, and they said that colleges really have no idea what they're doing and how to handle COVID. They are hoping they're going to open up classrooms in the fall. They're probably going to open up classrooms. And then the question everyone I know at a university is telling me is saying, we think, honestly, it's going to last two weeks. We think it's only a matter of time before we're forced to shut down again and send all the kids home. We just hope we get a couple checks from room and board and meal plans and stuff like that because colleges need the money that dorms bring in. In fact, I know people at Oregon State University who are living in a dorm this fall and taking classes online because – Colleges need that revenue. Colleges are really, really over leveraged right now. There's a lot of problems going on. And one of the problems is that colleges, again, have no idea how to actually handle coronavirus. And the problem is that there isn't actually an answer. Nobody seems to know how to handle coronavirus. There are so many unknowns. They can say wear a mask. They can say this. They can say that. But there's a lot of stuff people are just they have no idea how to handle it. And. Players showed up to workouts, a lot of players around the country. Some schools are handling things better than others, but some players showed up from their houses, from being on quarantine from coronavirus. They got to campus, they've been going to workouts, and they realized, oh my gosh, we are shocked at how few precautions there are at our college. Some colleges are not handling coronavirus well at all, and the precautions are not there. Players feel unsafe. They don't know what to do. That A lot of that stuff led to why the Pac-12 We Are United campaign came to be. Now, what's interesting is how many guys are afraid to talk about the Pac-12 movement. Athletes are afraid to say anything 
because they don't want to lose their scholarship, even if they agree. I've talked to a lot of guys. I've talked to guys from all kinds of different backgrounds, from different uh, socioeconomic backgrounds, different racial backgrounds, everything, all over the board. And really what it comes down to is a player who's got a middle-of-the-road talent who hasn't proven himself, a player like that, for the most part, is afraid to voice any kind of opinion here because they don't feel like they can afford to lose their scholarship. They think that they're in danger of being replaceable. And I, I, it's just interesting how many players look at what the Pac-12 is doing and privately are willing to say, I agree with that, but publicly are afraid to come out and say anything at all. Now, when it comes to paying college football players, and we're bouncing all around to a lot of different stuff, I'm trying to explain the mess of college football, and it's honestly such a complicated issue. I have no idea how to properly do it in order, so we're just kind of throwing everything at the wall, trying to do it in an order, trying to do it in a helpful way. In Division I football, you have five Power Five conferences, the Pac-12, the ACC, the SEC, the Big Ten, and the Big 12. And then you have the non-Power Five conferences. That's schools like Marshall, Bowling Green, um, San Diego State University, smaller colleges that do not generate as much revenue from their college football program. And a Power Five school like Oklahoma makes millions and millions of dollars from their football program. Meanwhile, a school like Bowling Green does not make millions of dollars. Sometimes, in fact, a school like Bowling Green, a school like UConn, for example, loses money having a college football team. They lose money because of the scholarships, because of the travel, because of the the funds, this and that, the facility, yada, yada. A team like UConn loses money doing college football. And so you cannot expect a team that doesn't generate a lot of revenue in college football I don't know where the money comes from to pay those people. That's where I'm trying to be very reasonable here. You can't create money that doesn't exist. So Bowling Green, who doesn't make millions of dollars playing football, they can't pay their players. There's no money to pay the players. But I do believe the school's making millions and millions of dollars. Schools like LSU, Alabama, they got to pay their players. They should. But again, a school that doesn't have as high a revenue should not. There's that line, it matters. If you aren't bringing in millions of dollars for your school, how can your school pay you? And when you decide where you're going to go to school, if you go to a small program that doesn't make any money, you shouldn't expect to be paid. If you want to get paid someday, maybe go to school like Alabama where they're making a ton of money in revenue. Because a football player at Alabama brings in a lot more revenue and maybe should be paid for it because they're doing the work. Uh, An analogy for this is, well, first of all, a player at Sacramento State, for example, the value is lower for that player because they're not bringing in money. A great model for this, a great way to, another analogy, a way to explain this is that you know, part of why you shouldn't pay a player at Sacramento State the same as you do Alabama, other than the obvious reason they don't make money, is there's other places that do this. Minor league baseball. You know, a minor league baseball player makes very, very little money because they generate very, very little money. You make maybe $500 a week playing AAA baseball right now. I think there's a, a move where in a, a couple, like next year, maybe they're going to raise it by another $100 a week. Like, woo, $500 to $600. Oh, but the point is, if you play AAA baseball, you're making nothing. You're making a very, very tiny amount of money. 
And when you go one step up from AAA baseball to the major leagues, maybe you hit, you know, one more uh, home run every 10 at-bats. Or maybe you're like, man, I, I am hitting one more, uh, you know, single every 10 at-bats. I'm getting on base a little bit more, hit like 10 more home runs in the season. You go from minor league baseball, AAA, to major league baseball. And one step up from, trip, from minor league baseball is major league baseball. And one step up, the minimum salary you can make, the minimum salary is $563,500. You go from making $500 a week to $500,000 a year. It's like, it's like roughly $40,000, whatever the math is there, to $500,000 a year. That's crazy. And, and that's the minimum. You might make way more. And it's the same with Bowling Green. Bowling Green or Eastern Washington University or Sacramento State or Marshall, they are the minor leagues compared to Alabama or USC. If you go to a Bowling Green, I know I'm, I'm saying their name a lot. If you go to, if you go to UConn, you got to be reasonable. They're not a Power 5 school. They have little income. They can't afford to pay their players. Be reasonable. That's in a very, if players ever want to be paid, they have to be reasonable. And all this amounts to one thing. At some point, college football is going to change. We are headed towards change in college football. But it's going to happen very, very slowly. It's not going to happen overnight. It's not going to happen tomorrow. I don't know that even the We Are United campaign in the Pac-12, I don't even know that that's going to change things in college football. But it is the beginning of change. It's maybe the thing that gets the ball rolling so that five years from now, things will change. College football is a massive, massive thing. College football is like a glacier. You know how big a glacier is? A glacier is so big, it's measured in acres, acres of land. That's how big a glacier is. It's unmeasured in feet or yards. It's measured in acres, which is ridiculous. A glacier is a massive, massive slab of ice. And glaciers do move, though. Glaciers move. They move around. But they do it very very, very slowly. College football is a glacier. It's going to move very, very slowly. But it will, in fact, move. It will, in fact, change. But it's going to take a long time for that to happen. The Pac-12 movement is the beginning of something. It's the beginning of something. It might take six years before players are ever actually paid in college football. But eventually, college football is going to change. Now, One interesting possible discussion that has happened with the NCAA right now is that maybe the NCAA could be dissolved because colleges right now need the revenue college football brings in. They've lost a ton of money. Kids are not living on campus. Kids are at home. Everything's going very badly right now for college football or for colleges, period. Not the football programs, the schools themselves. And if the NCAA does, in fact, cancel college seasons, then it could be possible that conferences say, screw you, we don't need the NCAA to have a season, we're going to have a season anyway. The Pac-12 has a season, they're already going to play themselves, they're just going to play their schedules, NCAA isn't a part of it, because they need the money. And it's very clear, this is all about money. Players are nervous. They're risking their health. And at a time like this, I don't blame anybody for who's nervous risking their health. 
especially while they're being underpaid or not paid at all. A little bit weird. Um, they are being paid. They're being paid in online classes and some food and a place to live. Um, but that's massively underpaid compared to the money they make for the university. Now, my final point is this. Some people say that if you ever do, in fact, pay college football players, which is, in my opinion, only a matter of time. People say that paying college football players is going to ruin college football because it's going to become all about the money and the teams with the most money are the ones that are going to win. Well, well, uh, to be clear, that's what already happens, right? Um, Oklahoma wins because they have a great facility and they have a lot of money and people want to be there and they can pay their coach a lot of money. And Alabama wins because they have a lot of money and they have great facilities and they have great uniforms. And they can pay Nick Saban a lot of money and Nick Saban wins games. The more money you have, the more likely you are to win in college football. That already happens, right? So don't say that paying the players is going to ruin the competitive spirit of college football because honestly, it's already ruined. Alabama and Texas have way better football facilities than Boise State. How can... Let's go back to Bowling Green. How can Bowling Green compete for recruits with Alabama? Oh, they can't. Bowling Green is never going to steal a recruit from Alabama. It's never, ever going to happen that a player is going to go, oh, man, the offer that Bowling Green gave me is way better than Alabama. No way. No way. But mostly, again, this comes down to who has the most money. Now, a change has got to happen eventually in college football. It's going to happen. And in order for that to happen, um, I, I think players, you know, because it's about the money, right? Because it's in college football, players indirectly see the money right now. The, the, the way that a player gets to experience the money they're making in college football is by uh, the program saying, we're getting you a new locker. We're getting you some, a shoe deal. We're getting you this. We're getting you that. We're giving you free stuff. And my, my whole argument is instead of indirectly getting players money through a new facility and new dining halls and this or new that, how about we directly give the players the money they're making? I think that's a better solution to take care of the players, get them what they need, give them something they can literally send to their family to help their family back home. All right, guys. Um, so, again, I think, I think players should be paid. It's going to take a while. It's going to take a long time for that to happen. Now – the other day, Washington State University, their college football program, had a really tough and really complicated problem where Cassidy Woods, a redshirt sophomore receiver, got on the phone. He called the Washington State head coach, Nick Rolovich, to inform him that he was going to opt out of the 2020 college football season because Cassidy Woods has sickle cell trait, meaning that he is at a high risk of, you know, being infected with coronavirus. He's one of those high-risk people where it could really screw him up. And so Cassidy called his coach, uh, and coach said, hey, opting out because of coronavirus is okay. And then he said, but that's different than opting out because you are joining the unity movement. And that is where problems began, because Cassidy is, in fact, also involved with the We Are United movement. And uh, Cassidy thought he could opt out of the season, say, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm at high risk of coronavirus. I'm going to opt out. But he thought he could do that and still participate in workouts and meetings and other stuff to do with the team. And I think my tone of voice is too harsh here. I'm not meaning to have a harsh tone of voice. I want to. This is an important message to me that matters a lot. Now, Nick Rolovich, the head coach of Washington State, actually 
they asked him to clean out his locker. They said, hey, uh, we're going to have you clean out your locker. Um, and Cassidy Woods is still on scholarship. But I, you know, I, I don't know. How, I, I'm trying to give you what happened. He got on the phone with his coach. He told his coach he's opting out. The coach said, well, I hope you're clear. If you're opting out because of the med, because of the We Are United thing, that's a very different way we're going to handle it. And then at some point, Cassidy was asked to clean out his locker. And so I want to now share my opinion. I got on the phone with Cassidy Woods. I called Cassidy Woods myself. Him and I talked. We had a conversation. He's a really good dude. I like Cassidy Woods. He's a guy who um, had some catches last year for Washington State. He was a freshman playing, and he wants to – he loves football. He wants – he was going to hopefully have a role, a bigger role this year with the Washington State football team. And I'll be honest, I actually don't know that – the head coach, Nick Rolovich, and the player, Cassidy Woods, I don't know that they're actually at odds with each other. I think they had a miscommunication, and I don't think that they are people that need to have an antagonistic relationship. I, I think they can actually walk away from this and still have a relationship. I said this was a complicated story um, because when I read it, I went, oof, man, Nick Rolovich, what are you doing? And my first reaction, my gut reaction was, that's not good at all. And, you know, when the coach says, are you part of the unity movement? And then right afterwards asks the player to clean out their locker. I don't know. I, I will say that if maybe if you read what the coach said, it sounds really bad. But maybe if you heard a recording of the conversation, you might actually hear some care from the coach. Hear some care in his voice. Hear some care in his inflection. Maybe if you heard a phone call, it'd be a little bit different. And... I know that myself personally, me, Zach Schaumler, the former college quarterback, I have had conversations with college coaches and been hurt by them. And I know that when I was hurt by a college coach, it clouded my judgment. And I, I also know that if I was ever told to clean out my locker uh, when, I was not inspect, when I was not expecting that, when I was not prepared to be told to clean out my locker, it would have, in fact, really alarmed me. It would have really hurt me. If I was told, hey, Zach, clean out your locker, I'd be like, uh, what? Am I cut? What's going on? I'd be very confused. I'd have a lot of questions. And I, I would have acted very emotionally in that situation. And so the way I would have handled all this, um, you know, Nick Rolovich, if you're out there, Nick, I think it's very likely that you were trying to care for your player's heart. Nick Rolovich, uh, I want to give you and extend you a hand if – I, I'm not a gotcha guy. I, I've done interviews in the past with people. Uh, I have a lot of friends behind the scenes. I, I don't I, even friends of mine in the NFL. I said, "Hey, come on the show when your career is over. I love you. I don't want to hurt you. I don't want to have you say anything dumb that gets you hurt." I'm not a gotcha guy. I don't record a live show. And if you want to have a platform to say that you were trying to care for your player with what you said, I'd love to have you on, Nick Rolovich. I would. Um, I think what really went wrong here is that. Having a conversation about a player opting out and then having a conversation about the unity movement are two separate conversations that needed to happen separately, right? Having a player tell you I'm opting out because of coronavirus and then having a player tell you that they're part of the unity movement, again, they're separate issues. They're separate things, a little bit, a little bit separate. And if I was a coach, here's how I would have handled this. The phone rings, I say, oh, hey, college football player. Oh, you're opting out? Oh, no problem. I care about your safety as well. Let's switch the phone to the other hand. 
Um, now, just to be safe, I'm going to have to ask you to clean out your locker because, well, frankly, I don't want you to get sick. I'm a college football coach. If you get sick on my watch and you're, you have a high um, likelihood of getting sick because you're a high-risk player, that's on me. I don't, want, I don't want you to get sick. I don't want that to happen. Now, uh, to be clear, by the way, college football player, I want you to know I'm the coach. You're the player. You're still on the team. Uh, but because you're at risk, let's get you away for a little while. Let's keep you safe. Now, now, by the way, since I have you on the phone, do you mind if we switch the conversation to now a separate issue? You're on the team. You're safe. Uh, this is now a completely separate conversation. I want to ask you, are you by any chance involved with the unity movement? Oh, oh, you are? Okay. Hey, man, I just want you to know I'm the coach. I support you. Uh, I would advise you to be careful because I'm a coach, but there are a lot of people above me that are my bosses and that my bosses have bosses and I have to answer to a lot of people. And I want to be clear, I'm not threatening you, but I just want you to know that if you go down the road and you join the movement, there could be some hard stuff ahead of the road for you that I don't cause, that people above me cause. And uh, because I care about you and I, uh, I, I want you to have a good football career, I care about your football career, I just want you to know that if you join the movement, there might be some stuff down the road that I, I can't control that's hard for you. And I just want you to be aware of that. Okay. Hey, man. Awesome. I, uh, I care about you. I just want you to I – think, I think you're great. Okay. Have a great day. Talk to you later. Bye. Hang up the phone. You could have had that conversation and been very clear. Hey, these are separate things. And I honestly think that to some degree, Cassidy Woods and Nick Rolovich at Washington State had a miscommunication where I think Rolovich tried to have two conversations at the same time, and it's and it doesn't work. And I know, I'm telling you, if, if someone told me when I was a college football player, hey, clean out your locker, if my coach told me that, I'd be concerned. I would have been hurt. Uh, and I, I've talked to Cassidy Woods. I really like Cassidy Woods. He's a good dude. He's a good football player. Again, he played last year as a freshman at Washington State. Uh, he's not playing this year because he's sick, or he is a he's a guy who's at high risk of getting COVID and dealing with COVID and having it go poorly because he's got sickle cell trait. And he also, at the same time, opting out because of COVID, he also, at the same time, does support the Pac-12 We Are United unity movement. And it makes sense to me. And what you may not know is that late in March, Cassidy Woods' teammate, Bryce Beekman, died. And when someone in your life dies, it really makes you aware of how much health and safety matters. You go, oh, crap. Life is short. Uh, I, I like my life. I, when my brother died four years ago, me personally, Zach Schaumler, my brother died four years ago. It really woke me up to the way the world works, and it made me change the way I live my life. And I really want to see Cassidy Woods play football again. I think it would be a big shame if that the ending of this meant that Cassidy Woods no longer plays football again. Now, the coach, Nick Rolovich, I don't know what's in his heart. Um, I do know that what I've heard about him so far up until this point has been really good. Uh, I'm really close to the Washington State football program. I used to go to school there. I know a lot of people there. I, I know a lot of players behind the scenes and people I will never tell you I know that it's pretty cool to talk to them. Um, and people say that, first of all, the old coach at Washington State was a guy that I did not like and I thought did not handle players very well. The new coach, Nick Rolovich, is a guy who... People say a lot of good things about him. People say that he's changing things People for the good, by the way. People say that he cares about his players and he's bringing on some positive change. And so that's cool to me. That's awesome. And 
I just hope that Cassidy Woods and Nick Rolovich can talk and clear up whatever, what seems like to me, from my outside perspective, seems like actually a miscommunication. Two players who think they're, two people who think they're at odds with each other that really, I think, are on the same side of this. And this whole story is complicated, but at the end of the day, I want good people, whether it's, you know, I guess I don't want good people. If, if you're a good person, you coach or player, I don't want good people to be negatively impacted. I, I really, it would be a tragedy. It's tragic if a coach was trying to care for a player. He meant well, and in the process actually ended up really hurting the player. You know, if Nick Rolovich is a good guy who just was, you know, harebrained and had a moment where he used poor word choice. I don't want Nick Rolovich's career ruined if he's a good guy who had the wrong word choice. That would suck. And if I really, I already know Cassidy Woods is a good guy. I like Cassidy Woods a lot. I don't want his career ruined either. I want these people to walk out of this and both be okay. Especially, I don't know about Nick Rolovich. I know Cassidy Woods is a good dude. And so this whole thing is complicated and messy. Um, and I, I just hope that good people do not lose out here. I hope that if Nick Rolovich is a good guy, who, which until this point, everything I've heard is that he is a good guy. If he's a good guy who used a poor word choice, I hope his career isn't ruined. And I hope that, and I hope he's not destroyed in recruiting. I think that uh, on Twitter, especially I, I go on Twitter every once in a while, blue moon. When this was happening to Cassidy Woods, Twitter was like, do not send your kids to play for Nick Rolovich. Nick Rolovich clearly is a really bad guy. Maybe that was overreactionary. I don't know. Now, I know Cassidy Woods is a good dude, and I don't, I, I don't want good people in this situation to be negatively impacted. Okay, I want to do, I want to say one more thing about this entire college football. We talked for 30 minutes about it, but this mess of what's going on in college football is very, very important. And so I, I want to say this, and I, I really mean this. I really hope that people. Give college football coaches a little bit of grace, a little bit of grace. Give them a chance. Because in the Pac-12, you have the We Are United campaign, the hashtag We Are United campaign, and players want a better situation. And to be clear, I think the players are right here. I think the players are asking for very reasonable things like we want our name and likeness. We want to get paid a little bit. We want good health care. We don't want racism involved in our sports. Like, those are not crazy, outrageous demands, honestly. Um, and I also believe that there are coaches that may support them. And those same coaches that support the players, think the players are doing good stuff, might not be able to speak up. Realistically, how many college football coaches can speak out against the current structure of college football and say that college football right now is a disgrace and they're not paying players very well. How many people can come out and criticize the structure of college football and not get fired? How many people can do that? I count one, maybe two coaches in the entire country can be honest about the problems with college football and the way they treat their players. I think Nick Saban, the coach at Alabama, He's such a good coach. He's won so much. He could come out and say it. Other than that, maybe, maybe Dabo Sweeney at Clemson. That's it. One, maybe two coaches could come out and speak out against college football's current structure. That is it. There are a lot of layers of people above a college football coach. 
right? You have above a coach, a coach answers to the athletic director. Then he answers to the school. Then the coach also has to answer to the conference above that. And then even bigger than that, the coach has to answer to the entire NCAA. We think that college coaches are incredibly powerful, and they are to some degree. But there are still a lot of people above them that are part of the giant system. And if the average college coach comes out and says college football is unfair, then they're going to get fired. They, they can't survive that. And again, I want people to give coaches a little bit of grace here because, yes, college coaches make good money. A college football coach, maybe even millions of dollars, might make millions of dollars. But I would remind you of something that when a person begins coaching, no matter what level, whether it's high school football, college football, an assistant, peewee football, when somebody begins the process of becoming a football coach, really any sport actually, you don't make much money. And the majority of coaches, right? Because when you start off as a coach, you don't know that you're going to become a million-dollar head coach of a football program. You're just a guy who loves football. You might work at a high school. You might work at a college. You might work at a, who knows, the NFL team. You never know. And, again, the majority of coaches that coach football do not make very much money. In fact, most don't make money because most coaches are either in Division three or Division two or high school football. There's way more high school football coaches than there are in other higher levels because it gets increasingly smaller as it goes up. And I just want to remind people that people start coaching football because they love football and because they love coaching football. And so I, a college football coach is not a politician. A college football coach is not a politician. I think that might be something that makes people mad what I'm about to say. Um, I think there might be a lot of college football coaches that look at what the Pac-12 players are doing, the We Are United campaign. I think there's a lot of coaches that privately behind the scenes would say, I agree with what's going on. Privately, they might say, privately, they might say, privately, they might say that they agree with what's going on in the Pac-12 Unity Movement. There might be people out there that might privately say, that are coaches in college football, that might privately tell people, I agree with that. And it's really easy to call for somebody to speak out and risk their job when you're on the outside, right? I, First of all, look, I, I love my career. I have the coolest job on the planet. I am at my place recording, talking about sports, and that's how I make money. I make money talking about sports. I love my job. I would fight tooth and nail to get here again. I, did to get, I had to work so hard to get to this point. And I would do it all over again because I, lo- I love what I do. It's my favorite. My career is the only job I ever want to do because it's so much fun. And a college football coach has to work incredibly hard to get to the place they are. They don't want to lose that. They don't want to lose what they have. They're, they're grateful. They're happy. They're proud. Their life's good. And for people to ask someone to risk their job or do something that could get them fired from a job they worked incredibly years and years of their life to get to, that's a tough ask. And again, coaches that support the players are guys you 
you want to still have coaching five years from now. At some point, college football is going to change. I don't know that the We Are United campaign is the thing that's going to change college football forever. But at some point, there's going to be a tipping point where it's like, oh, the ball's rolling. And when the ball gets rolling and change really starts happening in college football and players start getting paid and things start happening that help the players and benefit the players. You want the coaches that actually support the movements to still have their jobs. If a good coach who believes in the movement speaks out now and gets fired and is replaced by a guy who thinks the movement is stupid, that's going to hurt people five years from now when the ball's really rolling and there's things ramping up. There's going to be a tipping point where it finally becomes safe to say, yeah, I support this, and they can push it the rest of the way. But right now, I, I want people to remember, having a college coach speak out against the entire structure of college football, a massive billion-dollar industry, having a coach do that now and then losing their job would be meaningless and a waste. And with the unity movement, I have talked to so many players behind the scenes who are they're just average college football players. They are not the most talented. They are not, they're not the stars. And the average college football player is afraid that they don't have a ton of leverage and that joining the movement means that they would get replaced and they can't afford to get replaced because they're getting a degree or they're doing this or they're doing, or it's their shot at the NFL. And right now they might not be in the NFL radar, but they feel like in a couple of years, if they keep working hard, they might be. And I've talked to guys from different backgrounds, socioeconomic, different races, different uh, amount. Their parents make different amounts of money. They're from different parts of the country. People all over college football look at what's happening and support it, but are, are afraid to support it publicly because they don't want to lose their spot and they've worked hard for their spot. And as someone who's worked hard for my spot, I really, really understand that. I really get it. And I am 100% sure, based on the conversations I've had, that there are college football coaches in America that support players' rights and feel exactly the same way that the Pac-12 players do but they're afraid to speak up too because they don't want to lose their job as well. It's this massive billion-dollar industry. The people at the very, very, very top are the people that we need to talk about. The names I don't know because I, I know the name of the coach. I don't know the name of the guy who hires the guy who hires the guy who hires the coach. And when you look at a corporation, my girlfriend and I were talking about this last night. When something goes wrong in a corporation, the CEO of the corporation really hopes you'll blame an individual at a lower level, and they can scapegoat that person and blame that person. They'd rather that person take the fall than the CEO of the company, the person who the buck stops with. So I just go back to, man, I, I really don't know that I, I, people – it's really frustrating to me. With issues like this, people often want to make them divisive. People love to separate people and say there's one way, right or wrong, and that's it. And the reality is things are so much more complicated than that. Nothing's black and white. There's never just one way or the highway. There's never only two ways to go. There always is nuance. There almost, all, almost always is nuance. There almost always is a bunch of layers and a bunch of reasons why people do what they do. And when people are very harsh against college coaches and say, why don't you support your players? I would say maybe they do. Maybe they're afraid that if they do support their players, they're going to lose their job. And maybe they don't want to lose their job. 
And maybe it's even more complicated than that behind the scenes. And so I'm just asking people, let's have a little bit of compassion and a little bit of grace, not just for the players because they deserve it. And the players are in a really compromised situation and it's awful. And college football players are exploited, in my opinion. I'll be very, very honest about that. I don't want my, I don't want people to think I don't support the players, but I also understand that there are coaches out there that support the players and yet still don't feel comfortable speaking out because they're not Nick Saban. They're not dominant. They haven't got the track record that can keep them afloat if they piss off the people above them. Okay, guys, I want to tell you, it's been a a really long show and really a uh, heavy one. I want to tell you the best news I've gotten in this entire year of 2020. 2020 has been a time where I so badly need good news. It's been a hard, hard, very difficult year. And I'm already smiling. I can't contain myself. The XFL has been bought by Dwayne The Rock Johnson. And... I, I didn't think it was going to happen. I didn't think there was hope that the XFL would ever come back. Uh, Dwayne The Rock Johnson and his business partner, Danny Garcia, uh, and Redbird Capital have bought the XFL. They paid $15 million. Uh, what comes with that, I think, is a lot of debt, too, so I think they're going to pay up. They gave uh, the people that owned have the rights to the XFL $15 million. I think, as a result, they're going to have to pay a lot more to pay off some of the debts and the other stuff going on. Um this made me so happy. This made me so, 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 so happy. Uh, so far in 2020, it's been a brutal year. And the five weeks of the XFL season, you know, February, January, uh, was it like, it's just all of February, like the first week of March, I believe. My point is that those five weeks we got XFL football were the best five weeks of 2020 for me, in my opinion. I loved covering the league. I had so much fun. I legitimately loved the side, the, the league was small. It was manageable. There were so many interesting storylines. And for me, it was all about player development. I love watching player development. I love the way the league works. And Dwayne The Rock Johnson, if you're out there and you need help with media somehow, reach out to me. I would love to be the spokesperson for college football. Or for the, what am I saying? The spokesperson for the XFL. Um, the XFL is minor league football. And I hear from people often that say that one of the big problems with the XFL is and was that the players who do well are going to leave after one year. And that's correct. That's it's entirely true, uh, except for the fact that it's a problem. Yeah, players are going to do well and leave. That doesn't mean that's a huge, massive issue. Um, this is minor league football. You know, the same thing happens in college basketball all the time. A player is well at Duke, and guess what? Zion, after one year at Duke, went to the NBA. You do well, and you succeed, and then you move on. And you can have a favorite franchise if you want in the XFL. Part of the fun for me is to see who's doing well. And then if you're doing well, I, I talked to Tom Grossi today. Tom Grossi, we, it, Tom Grossi is a Packers fan. He does a YouTube channel. Tom Grossi could look at the XFL and go, hmm, which receivers are doing really well in the XFL? Oh, this guy, this guy, and this guy. I really hope that one of these couple guys go to the Packers and make my team better. That's how you watch the XFL. You don't watch the XFL saying, this guy's the face of the franchise, he'll be here forever. You watch the XFL and go, I hope this guy does well and goes to the NFL and joins my team, the Chicago Bears, or the Minnesota Vikings, or the Seattle Seahawks, or the LA Chargers. You watch the XFL. Hoping that your team can pick up the players you're watching that are doing well. 
it's not a league where players stick around for very long, and that's totally okay. Players don't stick around very long in college football. They leave too. And I've got a playlist on YouTube uh, called, it's, it's just called the XFL, I believe. And I have an XFL playlist on YouTube. I have 72 videos about the XFL. I do not think I got the most views of anybody who made XFL content, but I am 100% sure I made the most XFL content. I loved it. I tried to make a video, but every single team, every single week, I care about it. I'm very passionate about it. Um, I, I think I made more XFL content when the season was going on than dedicated XFL YouTube channels, literally. And I loved it, by the way. I loved every single moment. Um, I think it's so good for the National Football League, the NFL, the bigger league, to have a smaller league, minor league football, like the XFL, to exist. And I want it to come back. We need more football players getting more reps, developing positions, getting better, because it raises the overall quality and play for the entire sport. Having more players getting more reps, getting better, actually is going to make the NFL a better product as well. It's going to make every level of football better. And here's my dream for the XFL. When a player graduates from high school, you have to wait at least three years before the NFL will let you join. In fact, you have to wait exactly three years. The NFL will not let you join until you've been out of high school for three years because you do not want 30-year-old grown men tackling 18-year-old football players. It's not a good look. And you first reality is you don't want you don't want 18-year-old football players in the in the NFL. Because football players need to develop and get better before before joining the NFL. And I really believe the NFL is right on that. They're doing the right thing. But I so hope that the XFL can give some guys graduating from high school an alternative to college football. Hey, you're really talented. You're one of the best people in the country. Well, you can go to blank university, not get paid, have to go to biology class and chemistry class every day. Or, hey, if you don't like college football, the XFL is a great alternative for athletes because you go, you get paid, there's no classes. Uh, and for guys from some areas, you're not making NFL money. You're making less money than you would in the NFL. But you can't join the NFL anyway. And you'd probably, for some guys, I know I would be if I was playing the XFL, be making more money than you've ever been paid in your entire life. And it gives guys an opportunity to develop their skills and prepare for the NFL. So I am so, so grateful that The Rock bought the XFL. I have nothing against Vince McMahon. Um, in fact, I'm, I'm grateful for him because he created something I love. But I've never watched the WWE at all. Uh, I've watched maybe a clip or two on YouTube. Um, but it's not my thing. And I have no emotional connection to Vince McMahon other than he started a football league that I really care about. But The Rock, Dwayne The Rock Johnson is a person I really like. I mean, does anybody not like Dwayne Johnson? Does anybody hate him? I don't think so. I I love his movies. I love his personality. Follow him on Instagram. I think a lot of people do. Um, and he was an athlete. He was a WWE superstar. He also played college football at Miami. So he can relate to the players in his league. As I think about it now, as I live, I had an idea like, oh, Dwayne The Rock hit me up. I actually don't think I want to work for the XFL. I'd rather be independent. It'd be cool. Like, oh, yeah, I'd be propped up a little bit probably. 
Um, but I know that like with Formula One, I have an easier time criticizing Formula One because I'm not just a Formula One person who covers only Formula One, right? Or if I, if you don't work for the league, it's easier to be honest. And if the XFL ever is horribly screwed up and makes a bad mistake, if I don't work for them, it'll be easier for me to get away with criticizing them. So maybe I never want to work for the XFL just so that I know I'm being completely honest and trying to be unbiased. But I know that I'm a big fan of the XFL. I am so, so happy. And I want to remind people that when the XFL ended after five weeks, it was actually doing really well. People were watching. Fans were going. The games were good. The only reason why the XFL shut down was because of a global pandemic. They had to shut down. Half of the team in Seattle, my friends played on the Seattle Dragons. Half of the teams in Seattle had COVID-19 and they were sick as a dog. And it's not just Seattle that had that problem. Other teams in the XFL had players, a lot of their players, with coronavirus. I have friends who played in the league. I had inside sources. It was really cool. And I'm just so happy that the XFL has been given an opportunity to return. I really am. Uh, you know, My prayers feel like they've been answered a little bit. I'm so excited for what's to come. Now, I do want to say that The Rock has an interesting challenge ahead of him. You know, it seems like he's going to try to revive the XFL. And if I was The Rock and I had an investment firm backing me with a lot of money, simply for the sake of goodwill, if nothing else, I would go and make sure that all of the contracts that the XFL had were fulfilled. I would say, okay, did we pay Bob Stoops? Did we pay, uh, did we pay Oliver Luck? Did we pay Hal Mummy? Did we pay all the people involved with the XFL? Let's make sure we got everybody paid. Pep Hamilton was a coach of the D.C., uh, defenders. Did he get paid? He's now the coach of the Chargers, uh, coaching quarterbacks, but I don't care. He's not going to work for us. Let's still make sure he gets paid because what we want is for there to be a lot of goodwill in the football world about the XFL, not just with fans, but you want Bob Stoops to tell people he knows, yeah, the XFL with Dwayne The Rock Johnson, that dude's a good boss. That's a guy you want to work for. That's a, a league that does things well. They paid me. They went out of their way to pay me, make sure I got taken care of. Oliver Luck was brought back. Like, Take care of people, and man, they are going to feel a lot better about you. They're going to feel a lot better about the XFL. If you serve people, they will fight hard for you, and they will spread the message about, wow, this dude, Dwayne The Rock Johnson, doing good stuff, working hard, takes care of people, takes care of his people. So guys, I got to say, I am beyond ecstatic. When I found out the XFL was coming back, oh, yes, I was so happy. And even cooler is that this guy I care about, Dwayne The Rock Johnson, who seems like he could actually do a great job with it, is he's running it. And he's like, I mean, some people have even said they'd want Dwayne The Rock Johnson to be president of the United States. He's that liked. And he seems like he's got that great a head on his shoulders. Uh, I don't know about that. But, man, I'll tell you what. Him running a, a football league I care deeply about, let's go. It's awesome. I'm happy. And I was ecstatic when I read the news. All right, guys, my name is Zach Schaumler. I'm going to take a short break. We still got more. I still got more stuff to say. We're an hour 45 in, probably probably an hour, what, 35 after I cut out like the 10 minutes of my girlfriend opening the garage below me and I had to like whatever. So, um, yeah, we're just way into the show. Uh, we're going to talk about the Packers when I come back. We're going to talk about the 49ers. They added a tight end. And then we'll end the show with, of course a race reaction to the British Grand Prix. A lot of you people that care about sports in America don't care. 
I don't care either. I buried it at the end of the show. So if you don't want to hear it, you don't have to. Guys, my name is Zach Schaumler. I'm taking a short break. I will be right back. All right, we are back. Um, We got to start with the Packers. Green Bay Packers head coach Matt LaFleur came out and said that he sees Aaron Rodgers being in Green Bay for, quote, a really long time. Uh, It was odd. This was disingenuous. I really have no need to spend a gigantic amount of time on this story because it's, I don't know, it's, uh, I don't want to get outraged here. I don't want to be like loud and angry and talk about this for 30 minutes. Um, but it's clearly not true that Matt LaFleur believes Aaron Rodgers is going to be there for a quote, really long time. Because if he believed that, then the Packers would not have moved up in the draft to pick Jordan Love, a quarterback out of Utah State, in the first round of the NFL draft. And so my fear about this quote is that all it's going to do is make Aaron hate Matt LaFleur because it would make me really frustrated if I was Aaron Rodgers. I'd go, come on, man. There's no need for you to say that. In fact, when Aaron Rodgers, if and when he ever does leave Green Bay, that might just make his job harder. And so I have no idea how feasibly Aaron Rodgers and Matt LaFleur are going to work well together because at this point, I've been... I've been not afraid to call out Aaron Rodgers for certain things throughout his career. But I will say, in this situation, Matt LaFleur is making me feel like he's the... Like, Matt LaFleur is making Matt LaFleur be the bad guy. Aaron Rodgers here has done a very good job. He's been very mature. He's handled things well. And Aaron Rodgers has not said anything outlandish or ridiculous. I think that I think it's weird what Matt LaFleur said here, and I don't know why he said it. And if Aaron Rodgers felt like, you know, listened to what Matt LaFleur said and was like, what? And was angry. I would not blame him in the slightest. Matt LaFleur, I don't know why he said this. I, I just, it's weird to me. I don't need to spend more time on it, but I don't, it makes no, it's nonsensical to me that Matt LaFleur would straight up just lie by Aaron Rodgers for literally seemingly no reason. Now, oh man, the 49ers signed tight end Jordan Reed to a one-year deal. And uh, he's now reuniting with Kyle Shanahan, who used to coach him in Washington, And Jordan Reed's been a pro bowler. He's 30 years old, but he's been injured a lot. Often throughout his career, he's gotten hurt. But Jordan Reed is very, very talented. He's a very good tight end when he's healthy. And for me, this is a very quiet signing that will not get a lot of attention. That is very, very scary for the rest of the NFL, especially teams in their their division, the NFC West. Jordan Reed is a matchup nightmare. And the 49ers now not only have the best tight end in the entire NFL, George Kittle, they also now have Jordan Reed. And we saw the NFC West division react to George Kittle's success by, you know, the Seahawks traded for Jamal Adams, uh, who is, in my opinion, the best safety in the entire NFL. He's very versatile. He's a guy who who can guard George Kittle. And the Cardinals drafted a crazy athletic linebacker, Isaiah Simmons, another guy who I believe was drafted because he can, in fact, guard George Kittle. And so the 49ers said, okay, wow, you guys did good move, Seahawks. Good job, Cardinals. Well, you want to try to take away George Kittle? Go ahead. Because we just countered by adding Jordan Reed. You can take away George Kittle, but we have now another matchup nightmare that you cannot deal with. Jordan Reed has been injured often in the past, but 
the 49ers are putting him in a great situation to have a good year because having, you know, he's got the talent of a number one tight end. But with George Kittle, he's the number two, meaning that Jordan Reed will get more rest. There will be less asked of Jordan Reed. He can focus on the small things he needs to worry about and not be playing every down, not be playing constantly. And if he's healthy at all, which I think he will be, Jordan Reed is in a perfect situation. This was a sneaky, quiet, and terrifying move by the 49ers, getting another tight end who, like, great, you can stop George Kittle? Phenomenal. How are you going to stop Jordan Reed? It's a, it's a thing that no one's really talking about, where the 49ers, the Ritz just got richer. And it's like, how could anyone allow this to happen? How could you allow the 49ers to get another matchup nightmare-level tight end it's interesting to me, um, and the forty, you know, the, the NFC West, their conference, the 49ers conference, the NFC West, it is absolutely stacked. You have the Cardinals, who are really talented, talent all over the place. You have the Seahawks, who obviously are a playoff team. Russell Wilson, they got Jamal Adams, they're really good. And the 49ers, man, are no slouch. They might deal with a Super Bowl hangover, you never know this year, but they're going to be really good too. And it is going to be a bloodbath in the NFC West this year in 2020, if in fact... We get an NFL season. Okay, ah, man. Today is Thursday, uh, and on Sunday, a long time ago now, relatively, the British Grand Prix happened at Silverstone. And it was an interesting race. We'll talk about more of it. I got a little behind this week, and um, I I plan to do, I have a really good plan this week for F1. It's a a plan I'm happy about. I'm going to do a lot better job with Formula One this week. Remember, I'm new to the sport. And I got the NBA happened. I just got behind it. And I'm sorry that this video is so late. But since I'm so late, as I hiccup and cough, uh, since I'm so late this week talking about the Formula One race, I'm going to have a little bit of fun with it. I get a ton of crap from British F1 fans that tell me, you know, for, for the way I say two words, they say is wrong to them. And it's funny to me. You know, I say Grand Prix, uh, Grand Prix with a D sound, Grand Prix. And they're like, wow, Zach. It's Grand Prix with the no D sound. Maybe they're right. I don't know. And then I say Silverstone with an E. And they say Silver Stun, like silver and then like a stun gun, Silver Stun. Uh, Silverstone. You know, they say it quickly like that. And so Grand Prix makes sense. It's actually easier to say Grand Prix than Grand Prix. Hey, take off the D, no problem. Is it really Silverstone or is it Silverstone? I don't know. I, 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 I'm actually asking a question. I honestly have no idea what's right because I'm not convinced I'm automatically right. Why is there an E on Silverstone if it's Silverstone? And maybe I should say it's your guy's word, not mine. Silverstone is, I did it there, is in the UK. So maybe it's got UK pronunciation. You don't say Charles Leclerc because he's not from America. And so you say it differently to, you know, that's how you say his name. But I also know that Brits say Watsa instead of water. Say Watsa. Instead of water. And they say schedule instead of schedule, right? And they say, in America, we say mobile. You guys say mobile. So there's there's different pronunciations whether you're across the pond or you're here. And I, I'm not angry. I'm, I, I hope it's very clear. I think it's funny that I constantly am getting people saying, you're pronouncing this wrong and this wrong. And some of that is just because I'm American. Some of that is because maybe, is Silverstone really not with an E? Is it Silverstone? Question mark? I don't know. Is that a British pronunciation, or is that just how it's pronounced, period? I, I don't know, um, but it's fun. I want to go back to the race, uh, but please give me feedback, because I, I want to hear from you guys. I'm curious what you guys have to say. Now, I've got a lot to say about 
the race, uh, the British Grand Prix. It was the fourth race of the year in Formula One. Um, and I would call the race uh, a slow burn where, I mean, initially I was really disappointed. Uh, you know, one of my favorite storylines from this race was that uh, I wanted to watch Nico Hulkenberg drive a racing point car. And we never even got the chance because the car didn't race. It had engine trouble and there were there was no car racing. There was no second car for racing point last weekend. And... The first 18 laps of the race were very, very dull. You had, other than Kevin Magnuson uh, having an incident with Alex Albin and crashing, and then uh, Daniel Kvyat uh, uh, crashed. Other than that, uh, and I, by the way, I, spoke, I felt especially bad for uh, Daniel Kvyat. Kvyat? Uh, Kvyat. Thank you. Wow, see, American, idiot, that's me, lizard brain. Um, Daniel was pissed and upset when he crashed, and I... I got to say, I, I have no kind of pressure, no kind of idea what kind of pressure he's under, where maybe he's afraid for the sake of his job. He's like, I can't afford to crash. I can't afford to have a wreck. Um, and I, I do want to skip ahead, though, now, too. I want to skip ahead, and we'll circle back at the end, where Max Verstappen was in third place going into the final lap of the British Grand Prix. Uh, and when Valtteri Bottas had tire failure, had to take a pit on lap 51 of 52, Max was now in second place. And so that meant Max Verstappen was basically guaranteed 18 points for second place automatically. And at the time, he was 15 seconds behind Lewis Hamilton, who was in first place. And there's no way you're going to close a 15-second gap in one lap. It's impossible. So Max Verstappen is locked into second. And what he decided to do is he went into pit lane. That cost him 20 seconds. So he went from being 15 seconds behind Lewis Hamilton to now 35 seconds roughly behind Lewis Hamilton. However, with fresh soft tires, Max Verstappen was able to make a really good run at fastest lap. In fact, he did get fastest lap. He moved up. That gives him one more point in the standings. So he went from having 18 points to second place to 19 because second place points plus the fastest lap. He actually set a new track record at Silverstone. And that's a smart tactic, if you ask me. I go, wow, hey, great move. Got fastest lap, 18 points, plus the one, 19 points. However, on the final lap, you know, there's 52 laps. Lap 51, Max takes a pit stop, wants faster tires. On lap 52, the very last lap of the entire race, Lewis Hamilton got a flat tire. As I drink what is now, it's pineapple sludge because... It's warm enough. It's pineapple juice that if you sit long enough and the bottom gets all dregs. Point is, uh, Lewis Hamilton got a flat tire on the final lap of the race. And it was wild because Lewis Hamilton was just dragging his car along the track. I mean, I haven't seen anything like that in my time watching Formula One where he's just dragging his car to the finish line. He's got a flat tire. The tire's all ruptured. Sparks are flying everywhere behind the car. It reminded me of like the scene in, gosh, what is it, Cars? The original Cars where Lightning McQueen... It's like jumping and scraping his car, his tires on like nothing down the road. It was similar, not exactly that, but like similar to that. It had that kind of vibe. Uh, and at, literally as Lewis Hamilton crossed the finish line to win the race, Max Verstappen was coming around the corner behind him. I mean, Max Verstappen gained about 34 of the 35 seconds he had behind Lewis Hamilton because of Lewis Hamilton's tire failure. And so the question becomes, if Max, and not really a question either, more of a statement, reality, if Max Verstappen 
had not taken the pit stop, then he would have won. You know, factual statement, Lewis Hamilton only won because Max Verstappen took a pit stop with one lap to go. Max was on tires that were in no danger. Um, and the only reason he got new tires was to get that fastest lap. And I've seen some people say that Red Bull is stupid for the pit stop, and I could not disagree more. I think you have to maximize your performance, and the pit stop is smart because it earned them an extra point they were not going to get anyway. Red Bull cannot tell the future. And yes, Max would have won if they hadn't taken a pit stop in lap 51 to try to earn fastest lap. It cost him six points. And if Max had not done the pit stop again, what a one. Max would have had 25 points. He would have had no fastest lap, though. And Lewis Hamilton would have gotten second. And the driver's standings would have sounded like this if that had happened. Lewis Hamilton would have had 81 points and been in first. And Valtteri Bottas and Lewis, uh, Max Verstappen Max Verstappen and Valtteri Bottas would have had a tie for second place with 58 points between the two of them. Instead... What happened is Max got second place at the British Grand Prix and is now in third place with 52 points in the Formula One standings. And I just go back to saying that Red Bull did the right thing because with the information they had at the time, they were maximizing their performance. They took a pit stop. They had new tires. They got fastest lap. They got one more point. And by the way, they set a new track record. That makes sense to me. And Red Bull could not have possibly known that Lewis Hamilton was going to blow a tire. You just can't know. Even though I know that the other Mercedes, Valtteri Bottas' car, uh, had a tire issue. And, and, and I know that Lewis Hamilton, the tire issue for Lewis Hamilton, I guess, was not guaranteed is what I'm trying to say. You just can't know the future there. Even though the other one had a problem and blew a tire, you can't know that also Lewis Hamilton is going to do the same thing. So I believe Red Bull did the right thing. I really go back to, I think, Max Verstappen. In fact, in his post-game interview, his initial reaction was, well, like, you can't know that's going to happen, hindsight 2020. If Max Verstappen wasn't pissed after the race, I don't know why other people would be, because I think Red Bull did the right thing with the information they had at the time. And you can't live your life going, what if blank? Because that's, that's no way to live your life. Now, Racing Point had a bad day. Not only did they have one car that just simply did not even start the race, they also had poor car pace, uh, with Lance Stroll's car as well. Lance Stroll got ninth place. Um, and Racing Point looked a lot more like they used to under their old team name, Team Force India. And part of my skepticism all along the way about Racing Point has been that it's not just the fact that they need to have a good car. It's the team. It's the talent. And it's also the organization. Your organization is important. You can have really, really talented people that are useless if they're given the wrong tools. I mean, I think Nico Hulkenberg is a great racing driver. And he didn't even move the car out of the garage because, and that's, by the way, another, you say garage in the in the UK. We say garage. You, Nico Hulkenberg didn't even go in the race because his car wasn't working. So I my biggest question with the racing point is not their car. It's the organization making tweaks to the car. It's Lance Stroll. Is he really that talented? I, I have so many questions about Racing Point, and it's not about their their engine or the fact that it's a Mercedes, maybe a copy of the Mercedes. It's about the other stuff that's like, are these the right people making decisions that can actually get third place in Formula One? I don't know. 
Now, Carlos Sainz also had a tire issue at the end of the race. Uh, it cost him points for McLaren. So Ferrari got 16 points on the day. Uh, Charles Leclerc got 15 points. He got third place. Uh, Sebastian Vettel got one point. He got 10th place. McLaren got 10 points on the day, not because of Carlos Sainz, who had to, had a tire issue at the end. Uh, Lando Norris got fifth place. That's 10 points for McLaren. And so after the race number four of Formula One, the Constructors' Cup standings sound like this. You have Mercedes at number one. They have 146 points. They are dominant. Behind them, Red Bull is number two. They have 78 points. Then you have McLaren with 51 points. They're in third place. Ferrari is in fourth place with 43 points. And Racing Point has uh, 42 points in fifth place. Now, the battle for third place in Formula 1 is going to be really, really interesting down the stretch. And I'm really curious also, is Red Bull going to screw up somehow? If Max Verstappen has retirement or something goes wrong, they could actually end up losing their second place spot. There's no guarantee yet that Red Bull is going to finish second behind Mercedes. A lot of stuff to follow. It's going to be very interesting. Now, one of my favorite moments from race number four was during a yellow flag. Everybody's driving. They're following the safety car. And Ferrari tells Charles Leclerc, they're like, hey, man, you got to do work on the tires. You know, you got to warm up the tires. And Leclerc goes, I'm trying. The safety car is going too slow. And the reality was that the safety car was going 137 miles an hour. And for you British people, that means that the car was going 220 kilometer mile, kilometers an hour. I said almost say kilometer miles. That's not a thing. Um, so for a normal human being, 137 miles an hour, 220 kilometers an hour, that's really fast. And I mean, the Mercedes car was going full tilt around that track. And it's so interesting to me that 137 miles an hour, which for me, like I'd be, that's blazing fast if I'm driving that car. For a guy like Charles Leclerc driving an F1 car, that's still too slow to even get work done on his tires. Like, oh my goodness. It really shows... I love that moment because it shows the gap between an F1 car and a normal car. It's just a gigantic disparity between F1 drivers and everybody else. And now the final thing I want to talk about after this race is that we're four races in and Alex Albin is, man, I don't know. He had a, he has a, he had a really interesting day in the fourth weekend of Formula One. Uh, you know, he had a five-second penalty for a uh, Kevin Magnussen wreck, which – he got blamed for basically. Um, he started 12th place. He really struggled in qualifying. Uh, and it was an ugly race that in the end, I will give Alex Albin credit. He managed to salvage. He even got, he got four points for eighth place. And so Alex Albin is really in a tough place for me where I go, mm, I don't, he's not doing well enough in my opinion. Um, not, you know, part of why Red Bull isn't closer to Mercedes is because Alex Albin has not appeared to be pulling enough of his weight. You know, he's six in the standings with only 26 points on the year. And it feels like Max Verstappen driving for Red Bull needs more help. But I'm also not ready to give up on Alex Albin quite yet. I mean, he's made some... There was a moment early in the year where he made a move to pass Lewis Hamilton. Now that Lewis Hamilton was a little bit cheeky and a little bit wrong when he kind of tossed Alex Albin off the track and made him spin out. Um, but I think the mentality of by Alex Albin to go for it, to try to pass Lewis Hamilton... That's huge. That's a big deal. That's interesting. I mean, don't forget where we came from. Early on in the year, Alex Albin was about to beat or pass Lewis Hamilton. Like, he's not a total garbage driver. 
He's having a rough patch. He's struggling. But he's also young. There's a lot left to go for Alex Albin. Remember, um, Max Verstappen took a while. He had a lot of crashes and a lot of wrecks. It made a lot of people angry before Max Verstappen became the racer he is today. I think Alex Albin just needs a little bit of patience. The dude can race. He just needs time to develop. I, I, Red Bull, if I had a favorite team, it probably is Red Bull. I, I like Max Verstappen. I think he's, you ever watch the video of Daniel Ricciardo, Max Verstappen playing football? Like, holy crap, Max Verstappen looks awkward. And like a guy, you're like, that dude's an athlete? Oh my gosh. And they are. To be, to be a driver, you have to be an athlete to some degree. He's not coordinated to play football at all. Um, I like Max Verstappen. I think Alex Albin is interesting. I love Christian Horner. Um, and as a guy who leans towards liking Red Bull, Maybe just because they're the underdog and it'd be cool to see them beat Mercedes someday. Um, as a guy who like that, Alex Albin is a person I want Red Bull to stick around with and to hang on to and keep giving patience to because I think his future is bright. He just needs to be given room to make mistakes and learn and grow. And ultimately, Alex Albin needs to be given room to develop. Guys, my name is Zach Schaumler. Thank you so very much for tuning in. Uh, This has been a long episode of Strong Opinion Sports. Thank you so very much. My name is Zach Schaumler. That is all I have. But um, bum, bam, we are.